Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week was Chris Smage. Chris is a former academic. He was a lecturer in sociology. He has degrees in everything under the sun <laughs> and is also the author of Small Farm Future. Chris is so concerned about food systems and communities and land politics and the economy and all of the systems thinking that we have regularly on this show and um, that like more than a few other guests, uh, his solution has been to return to the land, create a small farm, uh, feed his community and try to educate other people how to do so because he firmly believes that the relocalization of food systems is a the only way to tackle an increasingly fragile uh, international global food system. As we've seen with Russia and Ukraine, it was much more fragile than people assumed. But also it is part of the solution to the climate crisis and it is part of the solution to politics and to economy and to fed up people who have been urbanized and disconnected from their communities, from where their food comes from, from what it is to be human, quite frankly. Chris is absolutely fascinating. He blends in this conversation population, climate change, the energy transition, politics, political economy, culture, health. And ultimately, of course, we spend a lot of time talking about power, the power systems that extract resources and how to increase autonomy in communities. There's a lot to learn in this episode. I hope you all enjoy it. If you do enjoy it, please share it far and wide. If you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. And a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who keep this project going. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're very welcome. Yeah, nice to be here. Nice to meet you. Finally, because I've heard a lot about your work. Um, so could you give a little bit of background about how, uh, where you've come from and how you kind of landed on the, the small farm um, as a means of... Uh, saving the world <laughs> <laughs> well I um yeah I, I don't know if I present it as a means of saving the world but I, I suppose part of part of where I'm coming from is that you know there is no kind of single you know there isn't a kind of single blueprint there's no kind of um you know magic answer to to the problems we're in but yeah I mean my background was um uh, I I was a social scientist basically um studied anthropology, sociology, social policy, worked in academia, uh, for a few years. And then, um, I guess I had a sort of early onset midlife crisis in the, uh, in the 1990s. <laughs> and I guess, you know, that was a time when people were beginning to talk about climate change, um, as a, as a big thing and, and sort of energy transitions and the food system, um, sort of struck me as, um, something that, um, uh, you, you know, was, was a real kind of crunch point in all of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, mm. cut a long story short, uh, my wife and I, um, bought, um, uh, like an 18 acre parcel of land here in Somerset, Northeast Somerset, um, in, in Southwest England. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, um, gradually started, um, uh, you know, trying to turn it into a small farm. We set up a little veg box scheme, a, a little market garden, you know, horticulture, I think, mm -hmm. and, and local horticulture is, is big in all of this. Um, but yeah, I kind of, so for a few years, I, I sort of focused, uh, um, just on growing and setting up the farm, but, um, yeah, I guess that sort of confronts you with the, you know, the global economy and the global food system in, in quite a sort of personal, tangible way. And I, I sort of began to kind of get back a little bit into, um, some of the, the, the sort of social science around this, you know, why is it so hard <laughs> to, uh, create a, a kind of vibrant local food system? You know, what, what are the bigger forces, um, involved in that and sort of, you know, going back to the saving the world thing, yeah, you know, you, you get a lot of kind of off the peg solutionism sort of both in the mainstream world, you know, it's all about yeah. GM crops or, you know you know, fermenting new type, you know, precision fermentation or whatever. 
but also in the alternative farming world, you know, you, you, you get quite a lot of that solutionism, you know, it's all about, you know, perennial grain crops or, you know, whatever it might be. And I suppose part of my writing is, yeah. that, you know, there's no, you know, there's always trade-offs, you know, there's always pros and cons and, and it's kind of about steering our way through that. Um, so I don't like to present my own farming as, as, as in some way the answer. And I think, you know, we're all kind of stuck in, um, you know, a sort of big dysfunctional systems in one way or another, but I do think, you know, we need mm -hmm. to really urgently be, um, um, sort of changing the narrative and, and rethinking how we do things. Cause you know, there are some big crises in which we're in, enmeshed. And so, yeah, I wrote in the book, a small farm future, the, the first part of it, I talk about 10 crises that we are facing that, you know, I think are just going to upend our world, um, in many ways. And that's the, you know, that's sort of where I come into this in terms of, you know, we need, uh, we've got a lot of rethinking to do. Shall we go through those 10? Uh, we could do, um, yeah, I'll, um, yeah, I'll see if I can remember what, <laughs> what they all are. I mean, <laughs> um, there's a kind of the, the sort of logical drift, uh, well, I talk a bit about population because, um, you know, that's a really complicated issue and people always, you know, people always say, well, the elephant in the room is population. So I, I'd try and deal with that first. Um, but then the drift mm -hmm. is kind of from uh, biophysical crises, you know, climate change, I think, you know, is clearly a critical one energy transition, you know, can we, can we transition into low carbon forms of energy and expect to, um, continue having the kind of, uh, cheap and abundant energy that we've, uh, that, that we're used to in certainly in, in, in the rich countries. And then, you know, things like water, mm. soil materials. Um, but then in the later, um, part, I kind of get into, you know, those I think are the sort of, um, immediate proximal factors that drive a lot of, um, debate in, in, um, uh, in, 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 in sort of environmental issues, but underlying that I think are deeper aspects of, um, politics and, and economics. And, you know, I've got a, a long section on political economy, I call it, you know, which is what the old original economists, you know, the likes of Adam Smith and David Ricardo called it before we forgot mm. that, uh, we forgot that the economy is actually, um, the political <laughs> in modern times. And then yeah. a sort of cultural crisis, because ultimately this is about, you know, who, you know, who are we as, 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 as individuals or communities or as a species, you know, what, you know, what is life about? How do we relate to the, to the wider world? Um, so I talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, so that's the, um, that's the structure of the first part of the book. Excellent. Let's, let's go through some of them because I mean, population is something that hasn't necessarily been discussed on this show actually a lot. And I think it is most applicable when thinking about food systems and food systems collapsing. Right. Um, because I mean, I think it's kind of almost, uh, um, um, like a cul-de-sac of an argument because, well, unless people want to commit uh, genocide against different peoples, you know, the population is what it yeah, is yeah. and we have to figure out how to support it. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have to figure out how to support it continuing growing as well, probably. Um, how does the, how do the food systems that we have currently support or don't support uh, population? Because I read an interesting thing recently that was like, 70 to 80% of the world's food still comes from small farmers. Yeah. Like industrial agriculture gets so much airtime, but actually it's not efficient or effective and it's not really feeding anybody. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, that figure is a little bit controversial and, you know, some people push back against it ah, a, okay. a, a, a bit, but I mean, yeah, I, 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 I think the way you frame the question is, is right though. I mean, firstly, the population is what it is. Uh, it will continue to grow, but at a slower rate and may drop off. Of course, if we get it wrong, it mm. may drop off very alarmingly. And that's, you know, that's what, you know, is that's a, a real disaster from, from all sorts of points of view. Um, but you know, again, it's partly this proximal versus underlying thing. You know, the reason that, um, the, the global population has got so large is, you know, it's driven by a whole bunch of these factors about, um, the sort of modernization of the political economy. And that's what we need to be looking at to address these things. Um, but yeah, you're right with the food system. I mean, um, and this is what I talk about in part two of the book, there's four parts to the book. I, I talk about this in part two is that we have 
really kind of put all our eggs in one basket, uh, to use a, a, an agricultural metaphor, um, in terms of, um, uh, a, a kind of glo a global food system that's very reliant on a small number of, um, uh, crops and a small number of livestock less importantly, but you know, there's, there's basically something like 75% of gro global cropland, um, grows just 10 crops, uh, most of which are cereals and, you know, a couple of, a uh, couple of legumes. Um, and, you know, I'm not arguing that, that we shouldn't grow those crops. Um, you know, the, the reason we grow them in such numbers is because they, you know, they tick a lot of boxes and they're great crops. Um, but you know, one of the issues with them is that they're very, um, processable, very transportable, easy to mechanize. Um, and so we've built this huge mm. and I think very, um, uh, um, non-resilient global food system based on, um, a kind of specializing agriculturally, you know, whatever, whatever you can sort of, um, produce, um, uh, you know, uh, well, I talk about Ricardo's notion of comparative advantage in the book. Maybe we don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but you know, the, 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 yeah, no, yeah. Could you explain it quickly? Um, well, I mean, the, you know, the, the idea is that it's, um, it's best to specialize, um, in, uh, uh, you know, it's best for a country or a region, um, uh, to specialize in, um, what it can produce, um, most efficiently. And that if we then all, um, kind of trade these things with each other, that sort of generates greatest human benefit. But, you know, that is on the basis of all sorts of assumptions that don't really hold true. Um, mm. and that's kind of what I argue in, in, in the book is that, you know, ironically, we've developed this, this global food system that produces very small numbers of crops, um, using a lot of energy, basically a lot of, um, of, of fossil mm. energy. Um, uh, and it, it produces it at kind of cheap, um, prices, you know, cheap, uh, wholesale or cheap checkout prices. Um, but it doesn't actually benefit, um, people greatly. It doesn't benefit our health because we're eating too much of, you know, these, these sort of high carb, high protein crops. It doesn't benefit poor people because essentially there's, um, yeah, there's kind of a global division of labor between the wealthy countries or, or certain breadbasket regions. And of course this is in the news at the moment with Ukraine and Russia being, being yeah. those breadbasket yeah. regions. And, you know, I kind of said in my book, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't predict the Ukraine war, but I did say, you know, it's not a good idea to place, you know, all our eggs in this, in, in this basket of this small number of breadbasket regions. I mean, you know, the North American, um, yeah, you know, prayer is, is, is another example. Um, so, you know, this, these crops are produced very cheaply using, you know, to some extent, explicit government subsidies and the implicit subsidy of cheap fossil fuels that undermines, um, mm. more local, small scale, uh, if you like more peasant agricultures with a wider range of crops, you know, even, you know, even staple crops, you know, potatoes, cassava, plantains, um, uh, yams, whatever, you know, people get pushed out of that, that kind of, um, local, uh, livelihood making. Um, and then they're sort of on the dictates of the global market, you know, maybe they stay in farming and produce, um, commodity crops, but you know, if you're a poor, uh, coffee farmer, say, you know, you're just incredibly vulnerable to the, you know, the ups and downs of yeah. global coffee prices. So, you know, my argument, basically the yeah. small farm argument is that as communities locally, it's better for us to take as much responsibility as we can for producing our food locally, because nobody else cares about us as much as we do in our own communities. Um, mm. and also, you know, we see the consequences of our actions. You know, if you buy, um, you know, cheap bread or whatever in the shops, you know, you don't know where it, really, where it came from, who produced it, what were the labor conditions, what were the ecological conditions of that production. Whereas, um, you know, the more that either you yourself personally or your community is taking responsibility for providing for your needs, you know, you're getting much more immediate ecological feedback about the consequences of that. And, you know, that's part of the predicament that we're in globally is that, you know, we kind of externalize the cost of, you know, someone else is going to produce our food. Some mm -hmm. other region is going to take the ecological hit from how it's produced. And, and, you know, you, you sort of put that together globally over time and you get into the, um, you know, the, the, the predicaments that we're now in. So. You know, that's a big argument, I think, for, for, for localizing, uh, 
you know, taking responsibility, you know, look, being aware of the ecological feedbacks and, and, you know, not making this assumption, you know, we've had this whole kind of assumption that, you know, get people out of agriculture, get people moving to cities, working in industry, you know, that kind of worked maybe in, you know, in, in the, the throughout, you know, a stretch of the 20th century, but it's kind of hitting the buffers now. And I think, you know, we need to get out of that narrative, yeah. you know, urbanization, industrialization, cheap energy, and into a narrative about, um, local community making ultimately. I like everything that you're saying, because it sounds a lot like kind of uh, driving a new form of responsible citizenship right. through community and through producing one's own food. Right. Um, but I mean, given, given the urbanization of the world that we live in today, uh, given the amount of people that are still flocking to cities, whether that's also because, um, their, uh, land is drying up in, you know, the Middle East and in, uh, on the continent of Africa, whether it's, uh, because of refugee crises and wars. And whether it's because, you know, there just isn't local economies that exist very, in very many places of the world anymore. Um, and also all of these numbers are going to continue increasing because all these crises are going to keep um, self-perpetuating. What about land use? I mean, is, what is the difference in land use between industrial agriculture and um, small farming? How much land does a community need? And also how, I mean... Does it not depend essentially on our landlords giving us the amount of land that we would need in order to feed ourselves? Like, what are the power structures at play that would stop it? You said at the very beginning, it's so hard to create a vibrant local food system. Mm. And you also mentioned power. What are the forces at play that are stopping this? And how can we either counteract it or go beyond it in order to be able to, to feed ourselves? Yeah. Good, good questions. I mean, ultimately, you know, that ultimately is the critical question, I think. And, and obviously it, you know, mm. the, the details are going to vary from, from place to place. I mean, uh, one thing I would say is that, um, uh, you know, in many ways, small scale local production, you know, in terms of land area, I mean, you know, there's a whole debate about that and we can sort of get into the details, but you know, People say, well, it's all very well, this small scale farming, but it can't feed the world. I mean, yes, it can, you know, and I mean, kind of your figure, although the sort of 70, 80%, okay. you know, that you mentioned that's debatable, but you know, th there's no question that you can produce, um, uh, yeah, you know, healthy diets, um, on, you know, on as, on as much or even less land than the, you know, the, the, the industrial systems that, you know, the, 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 the factor that's missing in that is, is labor, you know, and people. You know, it's, it's this kind of weird thing where, mm. and, and that's that whole process that you were alluding to urbanization and so on, you know, it's this weird thing in agriculture where every other employment sector, people say, great, we've created more jobs in this sector where in agriculture alone, people say, oh, great. You know, we've got people out, you know, we've made it, you know, we've made it more mechanized, you know, mm. we've got robots or whatever, and we need to get out of that mindset. You know, we need to stop talking about labor intensive and, um, you know, Helena Norberg Hodge talks about, uh, job rich, um, agriculture, you know, we need to start thinking about that, but you're right. You know, this, this process of urbanization, um, you know, it, it's been a huge factor globally and it's, it's kind of hard to reverse. Although saying that, you know, if certainly, if you look at the sort of the global poor and sort of urbanization in a lot of parts of the world, you know, people are kind of stitching together quite complex livelihoods that involves having some footing in a rural place, you know, family farm or whatever, but maybe moving to the city or moving abroad to earn money, you know, sending remittances, um, long-term sort of aim is yeah. maybe to go back to the farm and, and sort of have some money to, you know, so, you know, the, the, the sort of processes are quite complex, but you're right. There's a lot of climate displacement, but ultimately there's a lot of, um, it is about the power relations that, that, that you mentioned and the, the, you know, the extractivism and the way that, um, you know, our systems basically, um, you know, extract money, um, from people or extract, you know, resources wherever they can. Um, and that's, you know, I talk about it a bit in the book, you know, we have this, you know, strangely romantic view of, of the way the global economy works in being a sort of competitive market, you know, which is driving down price. Whereas, you know, the way it really works <laughs> is, um, <laughs> Uh, is, you know, powerful players in, in, in smoke filled rooms that most of us never, never get inside, you know, stitching up, um, you know, how this works. 
So ultimately, yeah, uh, you know, here in the UK, I mean, in, you know, in, in a lot of, um, uh, a, a lot of the global North or, or, or just generally, um, you know, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting in that control of land over the last hundred, couple, 200 years hasn't necessarily been the way to get super rich. You know, we've had this kind of industrial urban, um, moment, but you know, here in the UK, like. 40% of the land is still owned by the old aristocracy, you know, it's, it's, um, um, and you know, a lot of, a lot, a, a lot of the, a lot of the other land is owned by, you know, basically wealthy people, you know, in the U S Bill Gates, I think is the biggest owner of farmland, you know, here, here in the UK, it's, uh, James yeah. Dyson, you know, another big industrialist. So, so money, you know, money finds its way to land and that inflates the price of land and it puts it beyond the power of ordinary people. So, um, to answer your question, uh, yeah, that I think is the critical issue really is, um, is access to land, uh, for ordinary people. And, and I, and I talk about that a bit in the book, you know, the real problem is the accumulation of land and, you know, there were sort of interesting movements, um, in the early 20th century, like distributism where the idea is to stop land being accumulated, to make it available for ordinary people. And that kind of got shunted aside a little bit with the sort of the big political clash of the 20th century between socialism and capitalism, you know, the idea that the, the sort of industrial working class would use its kind of industrial muscle to access resources. And, and, you know, we got a bit stuck in that debate, but really we need to get back to this debate about access to, um, parcels of land for ordinary people and, you know, uh, I can't necessarily sort of say in any, you know, every situation is different, but, but ultimately, you know, there, there does have to be political pressure on access to land. I mean, I'm involved in various little projects here in the UK, the ecological land co-op that, 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 um, raises community fin finance, um, truck buys up land and tries to make it available as, as clusters of small holdings for people at, at kind of affordable prices, you know. We can debate how affordable they mm. are, you know, given the, the, the nature of the economy, but mm. we kind of need to decommodify it. We need to stop land, um, you know, just being a, uh, a commodity like anything else that floats on the, on, on the open market, because it isn't really like that. You know, there was Mark Twain, I think that sort of famous comment about buy land because they ain't making it anymore, you know, because, because land is a, is a limited good. <laughs> Uh, and because it's such a kind of stable, um, basis for everything, as I said earlier, you know, capital tends to find its way to land. So the key political battle, you know, is, is to, um, open land access up again to, to people. Um, and yeah, like I say, we're sort of in, you know, it's early stages in that, in a way, because we've had this model of urbanization, industrialization, you know, getting a better paid job, becoming more prosperous that way. But, you know, ultimately the only prosperity really is in, is in the land and in our communities and, 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 you know, being able to provide the resources that we need to, to, to live well for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, uh, is the key political battle. And, you know, as you say, it, it, you know, it has its own local colors everywhere, but essentially it's about, um, preventing, um, extractive landlordism, you know, preventing people just extracting as you know, all the capital they can from what, you know, whatever it is that ordinary people are doing. So for sure, you know, that's, that's the political challenge of our time and, you know, intergenerationally as well, because, uh, you know, a lot of people of my sort of generation have done quite well out of, um, you know, the economy generally and property markets, but it means that, you know, young people just have, um, you know, we were able to buy our little farm just basically on, you know, having had a you know, a, a kind of graduate type job living in London, moving out to the country, you know, there you go. We, we could, you know, we could buy some land, you know, that if, if I was, uh, you know, trying to re replicate that now, 20, 30 years down the land line, it would be impossible. So, um, you know, there's an intergenerational injustice there that needs to be addressed as well. It seems to me that this would be an increasingly steep uphill struggle because land surely is only going to become um, an even more sought after resource, especially as food systems start to collapse. Mm. 
yes. I mean, it, it is an uphill struggle. Um, uh, you, you know, uh, I mean, that can cut both ways. Um, you, you know, um, our little local veg box scheme when COVID hit, you know, suddenly the supermarkets, um, ran out of, uh, you know, the shelves started emptying, particularly of fresh fruit and veg. So, mm. you know, normally we get, you know, two or three new requests, um, of, of, you know, new customer requests in a week. And suddenly we got sort of 200, you know, <laughs> and people suddenly start thinking, oh, actually, um, you know, this mainstream route is, is not reliable and people start thinking about, yeah. um, you know local food systems so you know there is um you know there is the counter that um um you, you, you know that that actually we can start unlocking some of these ideas um i mean the other side of it i suppose is that uh you know it's yeah it's a really interesting one politically you know we don't necessarily have a landlord class um in the uk in the same way um that um you know a, a lot of kind of historic pre-modern land politics were where you have a kind of, you know, if you like a feudal sort of system where you have a sort of warrior aristocracy mm. that, that controls the land. I mean, there are people that, contr mm. that control access to land, but you know, a lot of, um, you know, here in the UK, there's a, a, a lot of land is in the hands of, um, you know, still relatively locally operating, um, farmers and others, um, and so, you know, the really critical question is, is, you know, where they fall politically, you know, they're quite geared to a sort of mechanized agriculture where they sell into wholesale markets that I think is going to fall apart. You know, energy prices uh, are, are going to increase, you know, there's going to be all sorts of turbulence in, in, you know, those tried and tested routes. And so that creates an opportunity for communities to say, all right, uh, of, of which farmers are a part, um, to say, all right, you know, um, how do we actually, um, secure our livelihood and secure well-being locally? So I, I mean, I agree with you. I'm not saying that it's all just gonna, you know, the chips are all gonna fall nicely into a, into a sort of widely distributed small farm future. Um, but you know, I think some of the sorts of um, historical, uh, political and class, um, conflicts around this are not so relevant to, to present times where we've got a very different, um, kind of, uh, social structure around the economy and around food. I mean, it's almost, it's a, it's a huge disadvantage that we're so alienated from the food and farming system. And a lot of people have no idea about farming or where their food comes from. On the other hand, you know, we're not in a, in a situation where you have a kind of traditional peasantry sort of under the thumb of a, of a feudal aristocracy. So, you know, that creates opportunities as well to, um, yeah, you know, to take that political battle forward. Yes. However, I think you could argue that we are more likely to slip back into a feudal aristocracy than we are to create, um, a new system that could be exported nationally or, or internationally, given the fact that 40% of the land in the UK, as you said, is still owned by sort of, you know, the elite class, given the fact that people don't know how to feed themselves, given the, the economic social precarity that, that does exist. Um, and also, again, given what you said, you know, these powerful figures in smoke-filled rooms, mm. I mean, they, they just prove repeatedly how keen they are on keeping, um, maintaining their power and maintaining their resources. So I suppose my question is, um, like what the ecological land co-op is do it's doing is fantastic. It's buying up land and then trying to distribute it, you know, a, a reasonable, let's say reasonable price or a fair mm. accessible price, more accessible for others, but without access to capital, i.e. without access to the levers that are the same mechanisms that have kind of propagated the system, how do we start to undo that uh, political system that has kind of created this, this situation, especially, you know, for my generation, it's like, we do not have access to that capital. We cannot go out and buy land and just start our small farms. In your research, what are there mechanisms that we can use in order to um, safeguard our future uh, in, in respect to small farming. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, uh, 
you know, we're starting from a low base. I, I agree. I mean, I, and I think I, I'm worried less about reverting to a feudal aristocracy, which I think, you know, uh, you know, that sort of arises in, in sort of fairly particular historical conditions that we're not in, but I am worried about the guys mm. in smoke filled rooms. I mean, that I think is the, um, mm. is, is, is the key thing sort of not, uh, and, and we are going to be, uh, yeah, already we can see the way that, um, centralized states are, uh, you know, sort of trying to manipulate narratives around, um, uh, you know, defending mm -hmm. borders, um, you know, uh, sort of looking out for the ordinary people, you know, it's, I think we're going to get more and more authoritarian, repressive kinds of, um, languages about, um, sure. you know, so, um, yeah, so the key thing is to, um, is, is, is to combat that. And I think, you know, what feeds into that is this whole narrative of progress, um, technology, you know, people getting richer, um, prosperity, which increasingly is, is kind of threadbare, you know, we, we, and we're sort of seeing the politics of that, um, work its way out, you know, in, in North America and, and in, and in Western Europe. So, you know. The first part of that political battle, um, is to kind of call that out and say, you know, no, this model that, you know, that, that, um, you know, has been, um, uh, it's, it's kind of endlessly touted of, of more technology, more progress, you know, sort of nationalist development, um, is actually not working is, is bankrupt is, is benefiting the, you know, the few rather than the many, um, and that you know, is, is then the opportunity to create, um, um, you know, more localized systems. And, you know, I talk about it a bit in the, the final part of the book, the, the notion of the supersedure state, I call it, where it kind of requires, yeah, yeah. I think as the, as the power of the state, um, I mean, it can go different ways, you know, I'm not, I, this is not some kind of utopian vision about how it's all going to work out. Uh, nicely in the end, you know, it, yeah. it can go in some very repressive, authoritarian, violent ways. And I think it will do in some places, you know, the challenge is to try and take it in a different way and to exploit the fact that this, you know, the state can no longer, um, uh, sort of control all the, you know, keep all the juggling balls in the air or, or kind of put all the strings and keep providing the service that people have become used to. So the, the opportunity then is, um, you know, which people are doing, communities are doing, you know, is to say, well, you know, this, this kind of top down model isn't working. We need to take, um, you know, we need to take responsibility and take control of this locally. That gives opportunities, um, to start creating, um, uh, you know, and uh, again, the details, uh, which I talk about a bit in the book can be quite complex, you know, it's to do with distributing access to land so that people, you know, have uh, access to small plots of land. So, you know, things like allotments, um, historically in the UK, you know, the, the ecological land cult type model, creating commons to make, um, better collective use of land. You know, all of those things start to come into play when, uh, you know, the community feels it can, or it must, um, um, generate livelihood, but that inevitably will um, or potentially will create conflict, um, with, um, you know, that, um, uh, you, you know, those larger forces and, 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 you know, structures of ownership and, you know, there's no way around that, that, that is going to be, uh, the conflict of our time. Um, but it's going to be different, I think, to, um, you know, some of the ways in which we've, we've sort of thought about the politics before of, you know, left and right, or, you know, sort of industrial labor, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, we're in a kind of different, uh, framework about land politics and the need, uh, for individuals, households, communities to produce livelihood. Um, you know, and that's essentially what the, the kind of political aspects of my book are about. Um, and, you know, I don't have a kind of you know, I don't have a magic answer. And, and in fact, I think that's part of the problem with, that we've got into that, um, you know, whether it's kind of free markets or whether it's, um, you know, proletarian struggle, you know, some of our sort of modernist political frameworks mm. have said, you know, this is the kind of single key, this is going to deliver progress and prosperity, but you know, there is, you know, there isn't, um, you know, we don't have those single keys, you know, um, we, we have to sort of invent this collectively as we go along, which is where, you know, I draw on, um, 
you know, the, the, the traditions of populist politics, which, you know, like all these terms, it can mean any number of different things and sort of tends to, um, get a bit of a bad press, but, you know, populism is essentially politics of the people. It's about creating alliances, um, you know, that, that don't have some kind of single goal in mind, but, you know, are ways of, of, you know, people coming together to try and sort out how to create their livelihoods in the here and now, or, you know, I've mentioned other traditions like distributism or civic republicanism, you know, so there's all these ideas that are, you know, that, that are sort of deeply there in history. You know, it's, I think we are at this moment in history where we're facing much more serious, critical global problems than have ever, than have ever been faced before. But the, you know, the kind of problems we're facing, you know, have been faced by societies historically in the past and, yeah, and there are resources there to draw from, but they're a little bit, you know, outside the, the, the sort of mainstream political narratives that we're used to. So, you know, this is a time to be looking at those traditions again. I just wonder how different this time is also because of the last 250 years of industrialization. And perhaps uh, we are some of the first human beings on this planet where the vast majority of us do not, okay, I'm saying that from a very global North perspective, many of us uh, do not know how to produce our own food. Whereas previously, <clears throat> peasant revolutions, I mean, these are the people that were working the land. Um, once they could, you know, overthrow the, the aristocrats or the elites or whatever, they still knew how to feed themselves. Mm. They still knew how to, to manage that land. Um, and then from having that very stable basis of the people are fed could then had the sort of, you know, the mental space to create new political systems, say, that's all a bit woo-woo, but it's essentially, <laughs> you know, yeah. the point still stands. Um, so, I mean, now we are at a stage where people are so disconnected from the land and from food uh, because of the, the food systems that we've created. Um, it seems like... It's beyond land politics. There is also the, the politics of education. There is also cultural politics. I mean, how do we educate uh, people with knowledge that has been lost and that, that so few have, especially when the political forces pressed upon that system are exist in order to maintain the current industrialized system, which feeds into the capitalist economy? I mean, it's, that is a challenging question. Um, uh, I mean, I think the, um, on the plus side, I think there was this sort of post-war period when it was very much like, you know, you, you don't need to learn how to, you know, you don't need to know anything about food production. You know, that's all being taken care of. Um, you know, you get on and, and, and sort of, you know, get your house and get your job and, 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 and become prosperous. But, you know, there is, I think much more interest now. I mean, I've seen that in, you know, being involved in the alternative farming movement in, in the last 20 years, there's, uh, so many more young people with an interest in food and farming, you know, I think partly as people are switching on mm -hmm. to how important it is in terms of the global crises we're facing. And also the fact that sort of mainstream employment, you know, it, it's no longer the case that, um, you know, farming is a, is an awful thing to contemplate as compared to sort of making money in, you know, in other career options, because those other career options are also, you know, increasingly there's kind of enclosure, <laughs> if you want to sort of use that word, you know, across the yeah. whole sort of, um, employment market, you know, it's not just people losing their land. Um, so that is changing, but you're, and, and, you know, the other side of it is that it's not, um, it's all of these things, you can sort of weigh them up in different ways. You know, it's not that easy to produce a, uh, a livelihood from the land. Um, but it's not that difficult either. You know, if you're, if you're trying to, um, make a, a, a sort of modern type of, of salary from any type of food production, you're really up against it. If you're trying to produce, um, uh, you know, enough, um, uh, fruit, vegetables, crops, um, to, um, to, to live off, um, you know, it's not, um, it, it's not beyond the capabilities of most people, you know, you can learn these things, but, right. uh, you, but we do need to, uh, you know, I mean, if I was, you know, if I was in power, if I was in government sort of thinking about all these crises that are facing us for sure, we've got to invest in, um, 
kind of practical horticultural education, you know, we, people have got to sort of pick up these skills and that's, you know, again, going back to that earlier part of our conversation, um, uh, you know, the rich countries have, you know, these very sort of mechanized agricultures and we export, um, either the responsibility of producing labor intensive crops like fruit and vegetables and things that we should be eating. We either, you know, rely on other countries, uh, where, um, the, 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 the sort of relative price of labor, um, vis-a-vis -vis energy is different, or we import workers, um, you know, from those economies, which are sort of weaker than the global North economies to come and do the, the hard work, um, you know, on, on our farms. But one of the things we forget, it's not just that those people, um, uh, you, you know, can earn more money in, um, global North countries. It's that they actually know what they're doing. You know, they come from, uh, you know, Eastern European labor, for example, in, um, in the UK, you know, people know how to prune an apple tree or, you know, they know how to, um, they basically know how to farm and they know horticulture. Um, and you know, it's absolutely vital that we, um, re-educate ourselves, um, about those things, um, which, you know, is happening and, you know, can be done. It's not, um, it's not the most, uh, challenging aspect of all this. And, 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 you know, part of what I argue in the book is to break down this, um, this division between, um, you know, the, the, the professional farmer the sort of image of a, a image of a farmer is probably a man sitting in a big tractor in a, in an empty field. Um, whereas, you know, so much of the farming worldwide is women, um, producing for their families on small mm. plots, growing a diversity mm. of, 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 of vegetables and fruit and so on. Um, so, you know, we need, to, so even if you're, you know, you're not necessarily producing all the food, uh, for your household, but you know, if you've got a little plot, you know, even if you're just growing, um, uh, you know, a few herbs and salads on a, on a window box, um, mm. you know, in a, in a high rise block in a city, it's starting to generate questions and, 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 and generate, um, uh, you know, generate a different kind of culture around food, which is, you know, what we need so badly. So I don't dispute the, um, the, the, the kind of urgency and the difficulty in your question, but you know, there are, um, you know, there, there are alternatives and we just need to accentuate them sort of now, yesterday, 10 years ago, you know, we, we just need to be doing that. <laughs> I wonder if there's an interesting sort of narrative strategy in everything that you're saying, which is that if people could grow their own food, feed themselves, it would grant them a, a certain freedom from the precarity of the current economic system, which is squeezing increasingly everybody. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if that would be a way to sell it to people in a sense. You know, we talk about um, folk going off grid, which is like, you know, off the energy grid, essentially. But if communities can kind of come together in order to produce enough food that can be shared amongst them, and that means that maybe not everybody has to work a shitty job um, and maybe not everybody has mental health problems and maybe they get to spend more time with their loved ones. You know, a lot of the same um, uh, reasons for, for degrowth, essentially. Mm. Um I wonder if that would be a way to get people on board in a society where I think most people are now waking up to the fact of like, oh, no, the, the, the system is quite literally rigged against us. Yeah, yeah. And I am stuck in it because I've been so disempowered and infantilized mm. through my education and through what resources I have access to. Yeah. Food production seems such a fundamental thing. Yeah. Surely so many people would jump on board with that then. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I certainly, you know, coming from my sort of very academic sort of education and background, I like your use of the word infantilized. It's like, you know, not, you know, not knowing how to, how to produce food or how a simple engine works or whatever, you know, or, you know, how to do a bit of plumbing or wiring, you know, yeah. so it's been quite a, a sort of education for me, which I still feel <laughs> on a kind of early, early stage of, um, <laughs> And also, yeah, you know, the food system, like you say, you know, we are in this situation where people are paying through the nose just to get a roof over their head. And so, you know, the relative proportion of the household income that's going on food has got less and less. Um, and so then this becomes this argument for cheap food, but it's kind of a vicious circle and, and, you know, so many people working yeah. in the global food system, whether it's as farmers or, you know, certainly particularly in the global South, but, but also in the global North or, you know, the whole 
all of these networks of drivers and food, you know, food system workers and, and, you know, the way that government, uh, you know, government social security payments then, then kind of implicitly benefits the corporations that are, that are underpaying people. So it's this whole morass, you're right. And I think that sense of autonomy, um, you know, that, that sense of, of, you know, of, of partly just being able to take whatever small step it is in your life that gives you a bit, a bit more autonomy gives you the opportunity to grow some, some decent, healthy food, you know, of the kind that is, you know, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrific that, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables, which are basically what humans have evolved to eat uh, is becoming a food for the rich, you know, that you, you know, the, the price of, um, fruit and mm. veg is, you know, mm. so we've got all this kind of cheap, you know, food based on that, those few commodity crops that I mentioned earlier. So I think there is a narrative there around the food and, and it, and, and it does again, have to be linked to the, um, economic extractivism. You know, why am I paying so much for my, um, accommodation? Why is there no access to, uh, land, uh, around here? You know, even in cities, there's potential for, um, you know, green spaces and growing food, you know, you can't necessarily grow all the food that, um, to, to feed everybody in the city, but. You know, there's, there's a lot of, of, of sort of local politics of urban space that, you know, that, that can, um, move towards food growing, which, you know, obviously the allotment movement in the UK was, was part of that. So, yeah, I, um, I, 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 I agree mm. with you, um, a, a narrative of, of increased autonomy and, um, sort of decreased extractivism, um, you know, that's, um, is, is the right narrative and. And I think the wrong narrative is the one of progress mechanization, you know, robotic farming, um, you know, brewing, uh, brewing food in fermentation vats to, um, you know, to, to, to sort of, to sort of get us out of, of, of contact with, you know, being, um, being creatures in the landscape, you know, all of, all of those kind of high tech eco-modernist, um, visions, I think push in the wrong direction. But, you know, it is a big challenge because we are, are a long way down that route of, of urbanization and, and industrialization. It's, it's a difficult thing to wrap one's head around as well, because the other thing that it gets sort of classified as is a, is a form of like regression. You know, oh God, we're going to have to make our own food again. And it's something that I've had, I've spoken to a few people on this show about small, small farms mm -hmm. and the necessity and, you know, food systems and. Uh, I mean, Jason Bradford uh, a few months ago was like, go and figure out how to farm. It is going to be absolutely yeah, critical yeah, for your future. Yeah. And I was like, oh, don't want to though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and <laughs> I really like, I, I, it's something for all of the things that I learned and for all of the um, wonderful people that take time to explain things to myself and to the audience, whatever, this, this farming thing is like, there is something so resistant in me to it still even though I absolutely believe everybody that says they took so much joy from it and mm. um, it does give them a sense of autonomy. They've learned incredible things. It's brought them close to their community. There is something about like the cultural narrative around it mm. that for me, it's like, oh, I just want to read books and stuff, you know? <laughs> well, there's a place for it. And know, so, yeah, I mean, not everybody has to farm and there is a place for reading books or reading books and farming, you know, which is, you know, <laughs> I've got more books here and my farm outside, you know, sure. so, um, yeah. um, but you know, I think, I think it just, no, so sorry, on. but just, just, just on, on that. I think, I think, I think the problem is that we still have, I say we, okay. I know that I certainly still have this like peasant image of when people yeah, yeah, were having yeah. to farm for their land, yeah. uh, for their food. And it was grueling and it was all day and you were a surf, you know, yeah. like the, I want to see more out there in the zeitgeist about the fact that like, really, I mean, if you're farming, like, yeah, some days will be hard, but like, if you average it out, it's like, what, four hours a day. Yeah, yeah. And then because you're producing your own food, it's a lot of distribution and chatting with your community and like, you know, building relationships and doing other things yeah. and having more time than if you're, you know, working in the city for like Goldman Sachs or whatever, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, there's a, the epilogue of my uh, book is called um, "Does Does Goldman Sachs Care If You Raise Chickens?" There's a whole little thing about that, but but yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think the two things. I mean, you're right. It's about narratives, um, and and you know, I'm not necessarily the. You know, I tend to just sort of, you know, I have a sort of fairly boring social science background, so I just tend to sort of say what I think rather than spin a beautiful story. But I think there is a beautiful story that can be that can be spun and. But you're right, you know, the, the, the two aspects of this are firstly the narrative of progress, 
which I think is a really um, sort of, it, 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 it's a really iniquitous one, you know, like the point of this is not to go back, you know, to some idyllic image of a golden past, you know, the, the point is to develop agricultures that deal with the problems that we've got today. But if, if we can sort of get over ourselves mm. a bit and, and, and not think of ourselves as, as the sort of, you know, wonderful, most evolved versions of humanity, uh, we can look back to historic agricultures of the past because people solved then problems that we face now, which is how to generate a livelihood with in a, in a sort of low impact, low energy input way. And, you know, most parts of the world, um, have developed an agriculture that, you know, mixes, uh, sort of grass, livestock, cropland, woodland in, you know, really clever, sophisticated ways. And I think we do them a disservice by kind of saying, ah, oh, you know, just a bunch of old peasants. What, what did they do? You know, it, it, you know, they, they were kind of high tech tech systems that people developed that we can learn from, you yeah. know, we don't have to replicate yeah. every exact thing. Um, but you know, we can also, it, it does breed appreciation, you know, when you see, um, the systems that people developed and the, the subtlety of ecological thought that went into them, you know, we, you know, that's something we need to do. We need to mm. re-embrace that local food culture that, that generated that. But the other side of it is also, as you said, that sense of being a serf, being under somebody's thumb and that, you know, th which is true. Um, but that's not really about the food production. It's about the, the economic systems mm. within which the food system, um, you know, is, is, um, is operating. So, you know, it, 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 it can be pretty grim, um, um, and, and it's all about the politics and, you know, there is this sort of narrative that, oh, everyone hated being on the land and went to the cities and that's not necessarily true. I mean, people, mm. there are situations where people did hate being on the land, but also hated being in the cities. You know, there's, there's kind of, um, economic extractivism yeah. and landlordism in the cities as well. So, you know, people are always trying to make yep. the best of things, trying, you know, seeking prosperity, you know, historically in recent times, the best way of doing that is getting away from the land and moving to the city. But I don't think that's going to be a long-term thing. But, you know, it's not about, oh, you have to, you know, you have to become a farmer. You have to, um, you know, produce all your food. It's, it's just about, um, um, yeah, you know, rethinking, um, you know, where we're situated within that and, and what kinds of, of life ways, you know, we, you know, we need to create. Um, so yeah, I think both of those things are important, but you know, it goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. It is really, really vital that we don't become serfs, you know. I mean, peasant is a term, I don't know, so I, 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 I've kind of used it quite a lot and sometimes I think it's a mistake, um, you know, and, and there's a whole sort of, you know, the, the whole kind of scholarly literature about small scale farming and ruralism in recent times has all been about, you know, the demise of the peasantry, which, you know, I, I don't think they, you know, <laughs> they haven't, demo, you know, they, they haven't disappeared nearly as much as people have thought, but it does create those, yeah. those perhaps yeah. those wrong connotations for a lot of people. So, you know, as I say, you know, as we were saying earlier, the key battle, um, is, 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 is not to be peasantized, but to, um, but to have rural autonomy, to have livelihood autonomy, you know, livelihood autonomy is the, is the key thing, which people clearly aren't getting, you know, in the way that. Um, you know, the mainstream employment, mainstream, um, sort of housing sectors are going. So, you know, we need to rethink that. Um, but you know, it's not, not, not for everyone, but if you're not a farmer, uh, you know, I talk about it a bit in the book, you know, one of the problems is that, um, I mean, I, I, I sort of use the, the, the notion of symbolic, um, a symbolic economy, you know, money is this sort of ultimate symbolic, it's not a real thing, but it, it, it can draw down on real resources. So. You know, there's a lot of people in the modern world who've got quite a lot of money in their pocket, um, which enables them to buy things that have, um, you know, that, that, that have potentially quite negative ecological consequences, and yet they've got no capacity to, um, you know, build up the ecology, um, you know, other than that, you know, people can do good things in their communities, whether it's rural or urban, but really, you know, you, you, you sort of average industrial, um, uh, sorry, your average urban modern worker, you know, doesn't have much capacity to, um, build up their 
surroundings ecologically and and that ultimately is what we need you know we need people to be able to you know either through the conversation or the narrative or practically through their day-to-day work to be um uh, you know to be adding rather than subtracting from um you know from their immediate ecology and from the the wider global ecologies Mm. And again, another really positive spin, I think, to put on that is um, that there's all this sort of talk of how damaging human beings are to the environment. It's like, mm, actually, it's like an economic system that is damaging and there's like a small percentage of people that are damaging and it's our industry that is damaging. Yeah. I think that idea of saying to people, saying to communities, actually, you can add to your ecology. You can be a very beneficial part of your ecosystem. You are not a virus. Yeah. You are not a problem. Yeah. You know, it's the systems that we've created that are the problem. I think that, again, is another narrative yeah. that just seems so necessary at this time when people are not only disempowered and disenfranchised, but like lose, losing hope, losing will, losing any sense mm. of... Um, capacity to, to do good yeah, no, for themselves or for the people or for the planet. Yeah. No, I think that's a really important, um, um, uh, you know, narrative. And, and, and again, it's one that th- this whole kind of, you know, let's urbanize and let's kind of have, you know, industrially synthesized food and, 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 you know, let's leave, um, all of, um, you know, the, 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 the wilderness to sort of take care of itself is problematic because it, it, you know, it, it alienates us from what we are, which is animals, you know, (laughs) ultimately, you know, we, we sort of live in such a kind of, um, virtual electronic world that we kind of forget that, you know, that we're animals that need food and, 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 and shelter and companionship, you know, like, like other animals. Um, and that, you know, it's interesting that point, because I think, yeah, I sort of touch on it a bit in the book, but, you know, I think humans, you know, if we are if we are inhabiting our landscapes well, um, we are uh, potentially beneficial. You know, there's a sort of concept of patch disturbance in, mm-hmm. in ecology where, uh, you know, you get animals like a, a, an elephant or a beaver or something, you know, that it, it, it kind of terraforms its landscape. It kind of, you know, it's, it, it cuts trees down and, and sort of smashes things around, but within reason that's actually beneficial because, you know, ecologies tend yeah. to, um, sort of, uh, you know, they, they, they tend to sort of, um, move towards a kind of, um, low, uh, uh, a kind of low disturbance, low productivity state. And if you kind of smash that around a little bit, it mm. creates more opportunities, uh, you know, creates more niches. It, it potentially, you know, brings more, more nutrients into the system et cetera, et cetera. You know, the problem is that we've, you know, as humans, we don't really know when to stop. You know, we, we, we sort of, you know, you can have too much of a good thing and we just sort of smash things around too much and, you know, invent, you know, synthetic fertilizers, which, you know, I'm not saying there's no place for those in the, certainly, in the, you know, the, where we are in the world today there is, but, you know, we need to, uh, you know, we need to kind of emplace ourselves more in our local landscapes again you know, embrace our role as patch disturbers and, 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 you know, manage woodland, manage grassland, um, but do it more sensitively than, uh, you know, than, than we are in, 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 in sort of present global agricultures and just sort of thinking that more is always better and, you know, productivity and progress is always the answer. But yeah, I think that's a really important point to, mm. you know, emplace ourselves back as, as, as worthy organisms in, um, you know, I think. Aldo Leopold, yeah. one of the pioneering U.S. ecologists, had this phrase that we're plain members and citizens of the biotic community. And, you know, if we can get, get our heads back into that, um, you know, that, that would be a good thing. <laughs> Wouldn't it just? I'm on a good note to end on, I think. <laughs> a very clear thing. Get your head back in the biotic game, everybody. <laughs> right, yeah. Chris, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. I have one final question for you. Uh-huh. Uh, which is who would you like to platform? Um, well, I was thinking, uh, have you, have you come across Simon Fairley? Do you know his, um, work? Um, the name rings a bell. He's, um, um, he's just published a book. I wonder if I have something. Yeah. Similar. He's just published a book, which is kind of a mm-hmm. memoir called going to seed. And, um, I just, uh, I've got an awful lot of respect for Simon. He's really, um, uh, done an awful lot of work here in, 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 in Britain around, um, access to land for, um, um, for low impact, um, uh, 
farmers and dwellers. Uh, he's kind of helped to revive the, um, the time on a tradition of scything. I'm, I'm going to be doing a scything session here with some of the folks on my farm a, a bit later, uh, with, with a scythe I bought from Simon, um, and a really, awesome. really good thinker about, um, agricultural issues and, 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 you know, how, how we can recreate, um, small farm sort of communities. So his book is kind of an autobiography about his interesting life called going to seed. Uh, he's, he's written other, you know, really interesting things about sustainable agriculture. So I don't know if he would be interested. Um, you know, he's, um, uh, you know, he's, uh, he seems to have a lot on his, uh, lot of, lot, lot of things that he's, uh, up to down in his lair in Dorset, but he'd be, a, he's a very interesting agricultural mm. thinker. I'd love to speak with them. Thank you yeah. very much. And Chris, thank you for your time. All right. Yeah. Thanks, Rachel. It was a pleasure talking with you. If you want to learn more about Chris's work, I've put links to smallfarmfuture.org over on planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.